Welcome back to World Changers. My name is Steven, and I'm here with Professor Mason. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, one of the presidents of the United States, John Quincy Adams. Before we get started, do you want to just kind of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of your background? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Matt Mason. I've taught at BYU since 2003 uh, after getting my uh, doctorate at the University of Maryland. I study American and British history. I'm especially interested in slavery and the way it impacted politics. Awesome. Okay, let's jump right in. So take us back to when John Quincy Adams is born, or should we call him right. JQA? Do people say that? Or? Yeah, I, I do all the time because I work with him so much. Yeah. But yeah, JQA or John Quincy Adams. He was born right in the lead up to the American Revolution uh, near Boston to John and Abigail Adams. Uh, and He was born in 1767, right? So right in the heart of the ferment around taxes and representation and so forth, leading to the American Revolution. Born to this up-and-coming lawyer John Adams uh, and the brilliant Abigail Adams and so this kind of rising American family he's born into with all the expectations that come with that yeah but I mean that's that, so politics and the lead up to the American Revolution are just like his lifeblood from the very beginning I mean he he remembered watching the bombardment of Charlestown and the battle of, Bunk, battle of Bunker Hill Oh, from wow. like just outside their house they could cool. see it you know from a distance so yeah. he had a direct relationship with the american revolution that shaped the whole rest of his life did he have any siblings if he did where did he kind of fit in if i remember right he was their first okay i don't uh, he had a bunch of siblings and they had a whole complicated history as all families do but yeah. that's not something i remember a ton about but yeah he's in terms of how it impacted his life as the firstborn he carried all the weight of his family's expectations. Like, so all the, John Adams wanted not only himself to be president, but the next generation to like exceed him. I mean, the, and Abigail put incredible pressure on him. I mean, that we, uh, in doing some work on him, found some great letters, great to us, they're interesting, but they must've put so much pressure on JQA, like from both John and Abigail saying essentially, if you don't become president, you will be a total failure. Like if you don't rise oh to the gosh. highest level in American life, you your life will be just wasted. Like, come That's on. That's terrible. Right? So you said that Abigail was brilliant. Um, yeah. Why was she brilliant? What did she... Yeah, I mean, she's, uh, she didn't have much formal education because of, you know, being a woman in the 18th century. But she just clearly thought very clearly. She's famous, probably most famous for her famous letter to John telling him to remember the ladies at the uh, Continental Congress leading up to the Declaration of Independence and so forth. But even just reading what that individual letter, let alone multiple others, she's she was able to take the ideas of her time and apply them in ways sometimes people were not expecting, like uh, agi agitating for women's rights in a letter to John where he was not expecting that. And, so, and she ended up being a really valuable advisor to John and uh, source of support, but also they were able to debate politics and so forth. She's for someone with very little formal education. She uh, just achieved a lot. Awesome. That's really cool. So John JQA has this immense pressure. He's right. born right before the revolution. He gets to witness these amazing events. Tell us about his education. What, how, you know, did he go to college? Right. So his education in many ways was very practical in that as a young man, so he would have been in his early teens, born in 1767. So by the late 70s, 
so really early, I mean, tweens, he would went with his father on a lot of these diplomatic missions that he was, you know, John represented the United States and France and to Holland or the Netherlands during this period. And he went as his father's private secretary. So even before even high school age, as far as we consider, he's getting like the full education of being the son of a diplomat and the private secretary of that diplomat, uh, writing half his letters, taking notes for him and help facilitate like the diplomacy of the American Revolution. And that and, you know, then, of course, John and Abigail encouraged him to get abroad classical education, understand ancient history and learn Latin and all that. So he had a lot of the kind of education of a young American gentleman, but in addition to which he had all that practical experience in the in the field of diplomacy. Yeah. I mean, he spoke multiple languages, not just Latin and English. Um, so he has all this incredible experience uh, growing up that fitted him for a career that was, for the first part of his career, was almost entirely diplomatic, representing the United States. It's interesting. It's I can see why the, that pressure was so immense, you know. And Steph Curry is one of the best basketball mm. players right now. His dad was a professional basketball right. player. So he had access to, he'd go to the practices. He'd be there with right. professional players. He was their friends. And and all that pressure kind of, you kind of have to. You've right. given everything. You've been right. given everything. And so if you fall short, it's, yeah, it's a failure for sure. That's tough. Did he have any... Um, hardships or immense trials in his childhood one thing we've done after doing mm-hmm. over you know 25 of these people is we've seen that uh it's pretty eerie a lot of them have a parent die in their youth mm-hmm. or some sort of childhood or fa- familial problems you know some clash right. that's they have to kind of go through it and once they go through it for some reason it kind of sets them up to not be afraid and like kind of pursue greatness right. did he have anything like that yeah, probably the most dramatic experience of like that he would have had would have been having to leave home at like 11 or however old he was when he, I mean, before even age 12 or 13, leave home to go with his dad on these diplomatic missions. Yeah, he had his dad, but he separated from his mom, from his siblings and from home and so forth and kind of being thrown into the diplomatic world in that way, very young. I mean, so yeah, his his father and mother lived for a very long time. Some of his siblings were interesting, had some issues, but I I would probably say the most formative experience was that business of being thrown into kind of having to be an adult so early. Uh, It's hard to say he had something we would recognize as childhood. Yeah. Or at least a teenage experience. No, that that definitely sounds, you know, difficult being so young and going on these trips. So tell us about kind of his life, uh, progressing up to him becoming president, and what exactly did he do? Right. So after all those diplomatic missions, came back to the United States in the early part of the American Republic, and then he entered politics as a twenty-something. He uh, because of his name and prominence, he went pretty much straight to the U.S. Senate, uh, representing Massachusetts. But then he fell out with the dominant party in Massachusetts, the Federalist Party, sided with the Democratic-Republican Party of Jefferson and Madison, which made him this apostate in Massachusetts. Uh, all Massachusetts Federalists thought he had ultimately, he was like the Benedict Arnold of their party and so forth. But then that launched him into a direct connection to that dominant party, the Democratic-Republican Party. So Jefferson sent him as our representative, was it Jefferson or Madison, sent him as our first diplomat to Russia. 
Oh, wow. Uh, so soon after he left the Senate, he went a uh, pretty good landing spot. He went to be our diplomat in Russia. And he was there during uh, Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Oh, my gosh. So he's, uh, he's seeing all these world events right up close. And then after that, he represented the United States in negotiations at the end of the War of 1812. And then represented the United States to Great Britain, which was the plum diplomatic post. The best one, huh? And then served for eight years as Secretary of State under the Monroe administration. So he's deeply connected to these Virginia presidents and the Democratic Party, Democratic-Republican Party, and diplomacy. And that's his wheelhouse. And he has, you know, nobody has a resume like that in the early republic, or probably any time, in terms of the number of prominent positions that he held uh, in diplomacy. So... um Let's rewind a little bit. You talked about how he left the Federalist Party to go for the Democratic-Republican Party. I mean, those are totally different than what we have today. Can you kind of say what the differences were at the time? Yeah, the Federalist Party tended to lean more towards, well, not tended, that's a very mild way of putting it. The Federalist Federalist (laughs) Party was entirely in favor of um, a foreign policy that was more friendly to Britain rather than France. This is the great age of the French Revolution and the wars of the French Revolution. Um, people like George Washington wanted to stay neutral in those wars, but the Federalists leaned towards a foreign policy that was more favorable to Britain and a kind of economic policy that looked more like the British economy. So Hamilton, who everyone's singing about now, uh, <laughs> he was all in favor of a, a banking system and a system of manufacturing and a commercial economy that looked more like what Britain was doing. The Democratic Republicans hated that vision for America, hated the idea of moving in the direction of factories and bankers running the country and and a, a big federal government that would be managing the economy and so forth. And so they ran in the other direction and they were much more favorable towards a foreign policy that was favorable to France. So they were arguing over economics, foreign policy and so forth. I mean. It, and JQA is fascinating in that he has this Federalist background, but he had a very hard time uh, embracing Britain in any way, shape, or form. And even when he represented the United States of Britain, he was very much about standing up to the British power. And I think that has so much to do with, I mean, he was born in the American Revolution, yeah. watched the Battle of Bunker Hill, you know, he has this Anglophobia that persists down throughout his whole career. Um, And that helped move him in that other direction. His father, what uh, political party was he? Federalist. Oh, he was. And so uh, John Quincy, John Adams, as the president right after uh, Washington, and he's a Federalist. But he, like Washington, believed he should kind of float above politics. Yes, he's a Federalist, but... He believed not in like being some partisan hack, but trying to be president of the whole United States. So in some ways, it's surprising to see JQA leave the Federalist Party. But in other ways, his inheritance from his father is we should be about the good of the outfit, not one particular party yeah. or the other. Was his father upset when he left? I mean, you said he, they kind of he was the Benedict Arnold that included from his right. Family. That didn't seem to alienate his father like it did other. Uh, other Federalists, again, because he, well, he had had some negative experiences with the Federalists who didn't campaign wholeheartedly for him for re-election in 1800 when he lost to 
Thomas Jefferson. So there's factions within the Federalist Party, and he's he represents the least kind of partisan of those factions, and so he was fine with. Yeah. Uh, Especially since then, JQA launches himself by that move into the Democratic Rep- Republican Party, into this illustrious career in foreign policy and diplomacy, that was seen as the road to the presidency. And again, you remember the the ambitions that they have that he become president sometimes. Yeah. So he was, he and Abigail seem to be pretty reconciled to that. Wow, interesting. So as a foreign diplomat, you said that he went to Russia. Uh, I mean, he lived there. Right. And did he learn these languages? I mean, what was he doing over there? Just kind of... Yeah, I don't remember whether he would have learned Russian. He probably wouldn't have needed to. Most diplomacy in the early 19th century was conducted in French. So he... Uh, and he had wow. French, so he would have been able to... But, yeah, I don't remember whether he would have learned Russian. Okay. But the people he would have been dealing with would have been... Wouldn't have required him to speak French. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and his move to the uh, Democratic-Republican Party, was it just purely strategic to get on that illustrious path, do you think, or was it? Uh, part of it, I mean, you can never separate his own ambition, driven by his parents, from most of his decisions, but he also believed in uh, political principles, and he uh, thought he saw the Federalists going in the wrong kind of policy direction. I mean, one of the beautiful things about JQA is he kept this diary for well over 40, 50 years. Wow. Um, and it's a fascinating source where he's kind of working through his own thoughts and uh, as well as preparing those thoughts for public consumption. And you can see him wrestling with just about everything. Everything's a big wrestle in his mind. He's like this tortured individual. If you read his, um, if you read his diary, and it, among the things that torture him are this kind of tug between principles and ambition and he recognizes the importance of both in his life and sometimes those work in the same direction sometimes those tear him in different directions yeah his diaries are just available for everyone to read yeah so a an edited 12 volume version of it it was published by uh his grandson charles francis adams um in the early 20th century and that's what most scholars use but Recently, the, the Massachusetts Historical Society, which has the whole volume, the whole diary, has digitized all of them. So they are all available online. Uh, and then, uh, and, and his handwriting is not terrible by the standards of the day, so they're pretty accessible. Uh, a friend of mine and I edited a volume looking just at the politics of slavery and excerpts from the diary just on that. And we were able to find a bunch of uh, entries online that were not available in the 12 volume uh, edited collection. The grandson didn't want to put certain things in there. Huh. Uh, so very, very widely available. That is just so exciting. I mean, it's just like a voice speaking from the dust, yeah. you know, just talking to you. So he, you know, has this illustrious uh, career, switches parties, starts being a diplomat, um, an ambas- ambassador, sort yeah. of, of some yeah. sort going around all these countries, eventually gets the bread and butter in Britain. Yeah. And then what follows after that? Then he becomes Secretary of State uh, for two terms under the James Monroe administration. And he's there for some major events. To him, the big event during that period was him negotiating a treaty with Spain that gave us Florida uh, and secured that southern border. Because he had this ongoing vision of American sovereignty defending it and but also american expansion and future greatness so for him that's what it was all 
about was defending American sovereignty. So things like acquiring Florida were for him a major, you know, to him he would have hung his hat on on that as a great achievement. Um, I was reading that some people consider him the greatest Secretary of State mm. ever. Um, why do you think that is? Well, things like that that treaty, and then also he did, um, I mean, he's the one who essentially writes the what we know as the Monroe Doctrine. He's the one who, as Secretary of State, drafted this statement that the Western Hemisphere belongs to us, uh, the Western Hemisphere, and the European powers should stop uh, intervening with that. And, and that is in context of Latin American countries declaring their independence, and then the debate about whether the United States should support them or Spain, uh, who's trying to fight to keep those Latin American countries. And so he's, in many ways, the sheer number of issues he's having to deal with, many of which deal with Spain, but also with France and with Britain. Uh, he, you know, it's eight momentous years that he is that he is surveying, in which and his guiding vision of protecting American sovereignty and expanding American greatness uh, guided everything he did. And so it, I think the, that's why people would think he had a major impact. So then after being Secretary of State for eight years, you said, mm -hmm. he runs for president? Right. And who does he go against, and how does it go? Yeah, the election of 1824 is fascinating. It's a four-way contest, at least four ways. Uh, so he's running. Everybody's Democratic-Republican. There's no Federalist Party anymore. Oh, wow. It's so everybody's, it's a period of no parties. In fact, James Monroe in 1820 had run essentially unopposed. <laughs> uh, but then four main dudes are running. So uh, JQA from within the, the cabinet. John C. Calhoun, also from in the cabinet, he was the war uh, secretary of war. Um, Andrew Jackson, this upstart from the West, is another major candidate. Not so, I'm sorry, not John C. Calhoun, William Crawford from Georgia, uh, secretary of war. And then Andrew Jackson, this upstart Indian fighter populist from Tennessee. And Henry Clay, another longstanding statesman from Kentucky. And so you got all this regional rivalry, the New Englander, the Southerner, the two Westerners, this four-way contest in which nobody wins outright in the Electoral College. So then it goes into the House of Representatives, and ultimately John Quincy Adams prevails in the House of Representatives and becomes president. Oh, wow. So he hit the mark that his parents wanted right. him to do. Right, in the most indirect, kind of tortured way possible. <laughs> yeah. Didn't win outright, either in the majority or in the popular vote or in the Electoral College, but he got there. Oh, know. man. Awesome. And during this whole time, um, has he been dating or courting anyone, or has he got married? Yeah, he got married uh, to Louisa Catherine, uh, who uh, has a an interesting... She comes from a kind of Southern aristocracy, but also is connected to uh, English, uh, leading English uh, families and so forth. And so she's she's very much in demand in high society. But then she ends up being really influential on him. Uh, she helps him negotiate all these diplomatic, uh, social events that he's got to go to and so forth, and ends up being kind of his Abigail. Cool. Like she's uh, brilliant, very well socially connected, has a, a real impact. In fact, I have a former student from here at BYU who's now studying at Princeton doing a PhD, and she's studying 
Louisa Catherine Adams and other women and their impact on uh, politics and diplomacy and so forth. And she's kind of the leading uh, figure in that study. Wow, really cool. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, he becomes president, and how long is he, pre- is he president, and what exactly does he achieve? So he's president for one term and achieves almost nothing uh, <laughs> because he is, I mean, he's this interesting character in this period in which you're not supposed to have parties. Um, he believes in that, like his father. He believes in being a president above parties. So he is eager to keep some of his political enemies in political positions. He's fine with that. He's Because he wants to show that he's the president of the whole nation. He's not a northern president. He's not a, uh, a federalist or a, or a democratic republican president. He is just president of the whole country. And so he wants to kind of float above politics. But meanwhile a strong opposition party is forming surrounding Andrew Jackson. Uh, And it it becomes the Democratic Party, uh, but it's known as kind of the Jacksonian faction. And they are fighting every last thing he does. So he he has a big vision of an expansive federal power. He wants to have the federal government building railroads, um, encouraging education. He has a vision of a national university. He wants to sponsor science. He has a he wants to expand the power of the federal government beyond what it had been to to develop America economically, educationally. His big kind of rallying cry was improvement. Like we want to improve our economy, our morals, our education, and we're gonna use the federal government to do that. Uh, the opposition surrounding uh, cohering around Andrew Jackson just goes ballistic about that idea. We want to keep the federal government small and keep it out of people's lives. So they organize around this kind of state rights position and think of John Quincy Adams as the ultimate Yankee meddler trying to expand that. He's like Andrew or Alexander Hamilton resurrected. It's the worst nightmare. And as you might imagine, therefore a big part of the Jacksonian coalition is Southerners who oppose him as this northern president and see everything he does as motivated by abolitionism and uh, Yankee craziness, which is itself crazy because he's trying to walk that middle road and say, I'm not a northern politician, I'm not a... So he's in this era of kind of resurgent partisanship, he's out of touch because he wants to be above partisanship. And so he... um, his first message to Congress, which is kind of like the equivalent of the State of the Union address today, laying out his agenda, just got nowhere, and it was like that for the rest of his the rest of his president. So he's a one-term president, loses predictably to Andrew Jackson. In was that common at the time a one-term? Uh, he and his father were the only one-term presidents up wow. to that point. You know, oh George gosh. Washington served two terms. John. Uh, Adams then won, but then Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, and James Madison all served two terms, and then the only other one-term president up to that point is our second Adams. Wow. So, uh, and then again, uh, after that, Andrew Jackson serves two terms, and so up until that point, he and his father were the only one-term president. And his father was alive when he was president, so he... Yeah, his father died in 1826, so right in the middle of his presidency. Okay, so he doesn't know that he didn't get... Right. Okay. Right, but he could probably see the the writing on the wall, given the reaction to his first message to Congress. So a lot of his great work came, though, after he was president, right? So what did he do after... So, yeah, that's what's interesting. um, And it was interesting to contemplate that 
a few years ago when, or not, it seems like a few years ago, not long ago, when President Obama was leaving, and many people were trying to think, okay, what's next for him? Because that's what every president who's at all youngish and still ambitious has to has to think about. And John Quincy Adams probably in his day didn't seem youngish, but he certainly still had ambitions. So he's trying to think about, how can I be a good ex-president? What's next? And it took him a while. He went home to Massachusetts, wasn't sure what he was going to do next, eventually settled on returning to politics by running for the House of Representatives um, to represent a particular district in Massachusetts. And then even after he got there, he was trying to sort out his place. I mean, nobody had ever seen an ex-president in yeah. the House of Representatives. And and he knew what issues he cared about. He still cared about things like railroads, banks, and uh, education, all those kind of improvement projects. So he got himself on the Committee for Manufacturers and Committee also Foreign Policy, something he still cares very deeply about. So he got these interesting committee positions, but what struck us thinking it through those early years of his post-presidency is it took him a while to figure out what was next. And then he comes to real fame, and most people today, if they know him at all, is as a guy fighting against slavery and and so forth. But that really didn't emerge until a few years after he uh, came into Congress. I mean, I guess it would take a lot of humility to be the top dog and now right. be, you know, kind of drop a couple notches down there, and especially your uh, rival. I mean, I'm not sure how long right. did it take, but if Andrew Jackson's there for eight years. Oh, he's still, he's enters uh, the House very much as an opposition figure to, to Andrew Jackson. Interesting. So tell me about slavery. Tell me about what he did and yeah, so uh, th- again, this is not what he comes into Congress to do, but um, in 1835, there's a turning point. 1835, abolitionists, who he had ambivalent feelings about, so the abolitionists, as opposed to any other anti-slavery person, is people who want to abolish slavery immediately, no matter the consequences, we've got to just do it now. Um, they sent a bunch of petitions to Congress um, and Congress had received petitions from abolitionists before, calling for the abolition of slavery, usually like in D.C. or the abolition of the slave trade, rather than the, right now Congress needs to abolish slavery everywhere. But they got a flood of these in 1835, and Southerners decided, for reasons of their own, that it wasn't enough to do what they had previously done, just send them to a committee and let them die. They decided, we are not going to receive any of these petitions ever again. And so they vote to never receive petitions about anti-slavery oh ever gosh. again. And it gets known as the gag rule. You know, you're gagged from even talking about it or even introducing these petitions. Um, John Quincy Adams was anti-slavery but not an abolitionist. But that was like, you don't have to be an abolitionist to be outraged by that. That I mean, right in the First Amendment, it says you have the right yeah. to petition your government. So he had his ambivalent feelings about abolitionists who thought were a bunch of extremists. But... It was more extreme in his mind to just stop their petitions at the door and not hear them. And so he kind of leads the rallying cry against the gag rule. And every year he tests the gag rule. So every new session of Congress, he tries to introduce anti-slavery petitions. And then they tell him that he's out of order and sit down, sir. Wow. And he, so he, and, but what that d- does is it forces a new vote. Because the gag rule wasn't even a law. It was just a rule in Congress. So... It was not like on the books in perpetuity. It had to be voted on over and over again, and he was the one who kept forcing that vote. And to him, it was, yes, he cared to a degree about African-Americans' rights, but to him, this was more about white people's rights. The 
ability to petition your government. And he just began, he was just brilliant in the way he would maneuver there. After a time, he realized, okay, if I introduce a an openly anti-slavery petition, it'll just get shot down right away. So he um, he got this one petition that he loved uh, from a, a group of Northerners asking uh, Congress to look into all the laws in the territories and the District of Columbia, and if they find any law that is contrary to the Golden Rule or the Declaration of Independence, they should repeal those laws. And so he just reads that, and on the face of it, doesn't say anything about slavery, but everyone knows, so, you yeah. know, slavery is against the golden rule and against all men are created equal. Yeah. So what he's done is force Southerners to stand up and say, you're out of order, sir. And what he, so what he's maneuvered them into saying is, oh, they hate the golden rule and they hate the Declaration of Independence, right? That's good. So I mean, it's just stuff like that that uh, made him like the endless scourge of Southerners and uh, this growing hero to anti-slavery Northerners, which nobody saw coming when he went yeah. into when he went into Congress. So, how does it end? I mean, how does his uh, term end mm -hmm. as a congressman? And did he get any did any did, did he get any movement done or any traction with uh, slavery? Yeah. So on the gag rule, he finally wins in 1844. He peels off enough Northerners who are no longer willing to vote for this uh, that in 1844 the gag rule goes away. Yay, JQA. When when is uh, the Civil War? I mean, yeah, the Civil War. When is the Civil yeah, War? Yeah, uh, 1861 is when it okay, begins. Okay, so like 20, 15 yeah. years away. Okay. Yeah. Um, he dies in 1848, uh, still in Congress. Uh, oh my gosh. Still representing uh, Massachusetts wow. in Congress. Does that happen a lot? Uh, in that era, it did. Oh, I mean, people like uh, John C. Calhoun died in Congress and, and so forth. Uh, he died while still a congressman. He was 80 uh, years old. Uh, so, still fighting against, even with the gag rule going away, he was fighting against Texas coming in as a slave state. He was fighting this and that battle against. He represented the slaves, uh, the slave rebels on the in the Amistad case that uh, Steven Spielberg made famous with the uh, recent movie, recent-ish, like 30 years ago. <laughs> um, so he's constantly kind of fighting what he would have called the slave power, the power of slaveholders in uh, Congress, as well as other fights uh, in Congress, but right down until he, he died in 1848. Man, so almost 70-ish years just in yeah. deep politics. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, let's move on to our... Actually, real quick, how did he die? Did he just age? Yeah, I, it was probably some 19th century disease, but it was multi uh, ultimately just like a thousand years old. So. Yeah, I mean, 80 is pretty good. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next section real quick. So why ultimately do you think that JQA um, is you know, one of the greatest people that have lived and one of the greatest Americans, one of the greatest presidents, secretary of states? Like what, what exactly did he, uh, the attributes that did he exemplify that made mm -hmm. him great? Yeah, it's a good question because I tend to think of him as one of the least effective presidents in American history, but uh, our best ex-president. I think he's even better than Jimmy Carter who is most people think of as our best ex-president. Interestingly, both of them one-term presidents. And in both cases, mm -hmm. the very kind of qualities that kept them from being effective as president made them great as ex-president. In the case, in many ways, both cases, this kind of commitment to principle and willing to say it like it is makes you really unfortunate as a president. We, you know, uh, 
it made it hard to get certain things done to play the political game that you need to to get bills passed and so forth. Um, but that kind of commitment to principle and to forthrightness and being willing to wage some battle based on your uh, beliefs uh, ended up certainly making uh, JQA like people called him old man eloquent in the in the House of Representatives, uh, not only because of his age, but also just his ability to maintain his position. Um, and so and the other thing about JQA is probably nobody could ever rival his resume. I mean, uh, in terms of service to the nation and effectiveness in uh, advancing America, especially on the world stage. What principles specifically come to mind when you think of JQA? Yeah, improvement with a capital I. You know, the idea of uh, improving America's infrastructure and education and morals. I mean, he was into all these causes like temperance. Uh, people should be drinking less, which was a major deal in the period that he's dealing with. So improvement with a capital I and anti-slavery of this political sort that fell short of abolitionism but ended up being really effective in politics and commitment to America's sovereignty and expansion on the world on the world stage. Uh, awesome. The big ones. I mean, for him, the union was maybe above everything else, but everything that went with that, making the union better with the capital I improvement, making the union more consistent to its stated beliefs by anti-slavery, and making the union more of a power in world's uh, affairs and more truly independent of Britain uh, in foreign policy. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Professor oh, sure. Mason, for coming on the podcast, you know, teaching me and everyone else about JQA. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening and catch us next week. <laughs> <laughs>